Hey everyone, and welcome back to No Shit There I Was. To me, there are two most dreaded communications within the entire existence of the military. The first is the call on the radio that there are casualties. It's obviously bad for many reasons, but most immediately, it is a shock to any operation and everyone's mindset has the aptitude to completely change in that moment if swift action and orders are not taken. The second is the casualty notification for families. For the notifier, you know you're about to give someone what is likely the worst news of their life. For the notified, it is likely the most anticipated moment in their lives for which there is no way to be prepared. You could probably ask any military spouse, parent, sibling, or child, and they can tell you that dark cloud always lingers, even if just on the horizon. The possibility your loved one doesn't come home, or doesn't come home the same that they left. It is in consideration of moments like these which led me to talk to Gina and Ben Harrow. Ben was a Special Forces Alpha Team Leader on deployment in Afghanistan when he stepped on an IED, a moment that irrevocably changed his and Gina's lives. I had the honor to talk to them about their experiences leading up to, through, and in the wake of this devastating injury. Their journey is amazing, and I personally am in awe of the strength of these two. I am particularly proud to be able to present Gina's perspective one that I know does not get represented enough in the stories of those who are wounded in the conflicts to which our nation deploys forces. She has not only been galvanized by their journey, but has used it to help others who are going through the same trials by serving them through the Yellow Ribbon Fund. Enjoy this talk with these two wonderful people in which, if you're like me, you'll find yourself running a gamut of emotions. Thank you for listening. Welcome to No Shit There I Was, a show committed to sharing the stories and experiences of those in and around the military for everyone to hear. So please, relax and enjoy. So life is a little bit different since last time I talked to you about Emblem Athletic. How about that pandemic, huh? That escalated pretty quick. As we enter fall and try to get some aspects of our lives which require interacting with others going again, things are undoubtedly looking different. For some folks, your dress code has been adjusted. No, the prudes aren't letting you expose your sultry calves to the world for the comfort of shorts in August just yet. You just have to don a mask over that glorious mug every day. And we've all seen the mask that people are bringing out. From grocery bags to cellophane, I'm sure it's on somebody's face. Hell, some people even think that masks are part of efforts to exert government control. Sure thing, guy. If the lizard people and chemtrails don't get you, the mask will. Joking aside though, we're all in this together and want to get through this as safely as possible. So why not bring your group together with a custom designed Emblem Shield from Emblem Athletic? It's so easy. Just head to emblemshield.com, submit your logo, and the design team will transform it into something you and your team will love. They'll send you an exclusive store link where you can either order in bulk or allow your team to buy their own. You and your team will have custom headwear to support your brand in no time. I'm here talking to Ben and Gina Harrow. Ben and I know each other from West Point and from infantry training and some time throughout the Army. You know, I, I met Gina early on. And if y'all can, just go ahead and, and give your background where each of you are from, how you met each other. and Go ahead, ladies first. Okay. Um, okay. I'm Gina, and um, 
my background. Wow. Okay. I guess I, um, I started out in the finance world and, um, and then, um, transitioned over to the nonprofit sector, um, about four and a half years ago. And I think as we chat more, you'll understand why I made that move in my career. Um, but Ben and I grew up together. We are both from New York. Um, grew up on Long Island, and we met um, around middle school, elementary school or middle school. It would have been middle school. Yeah, middle school. Um, we were actually each other's first kiss, and um, wow. reconnected after college, and um, everything kind of went warp speed after that. Yeah. <laughs> um, talked through deployments, dated, got married, had kids. And here, here we, we are, are. <laughs> 12 years, 13 years later. I don't even know. <laughs> Long time later. Yeah. It's like one to 10 things lead to another. And then, yeah, here you are. Yeah, exactly. That's awesome. Chris and I have a pretty similar, you know, we met right after a career course. We met the night before I was supposed to fly out to Italy. And then we started talking and we ended up getting married at the end of the end of the same year. So things happen pretty quick for us, too. You got to trap them quick. (laughs) You do. You really do. (laughs) Yeah. So I guess my turn to intro myself. You and I know each other from school. And and, uh, I played lacrosse up at school. And you were good friends with some of the other lacrosse guys at school. And so you and I probably first met at like a lacrosse tailgate or something like that. Yeah, Probably so. And um, we both did infantry officer basic course together. And we probably started ranger school together. But I, I recycled betting. And I think you went on. Yeah, I recycled mountains and Florida too. So, oh yeah, you don't really understand or appreciate Ranger School unless you recycle at least one phase. It's true. Yeah, and uh, so I branched infantry and deployed and went to uh, Special Forces Assessment and Selection uh, when I got back from my first deployment as an infantry PL and ended up getting selected and uh, went through the Q course and wound up at a Seventh Group. And uh, I did two deployments with 7th Group as a Green Beret Special Forces Detachment Commander. I know at least one of those was Afghanistan, right? Yeah. Uh, so both were in Afghanistan. And my, my second deployment, uh, I got injured, um, stepped on a pressure plate IED. Right. And so when did y'all get married? At, at what point during the, the career? Oh, you had just um, finished... Captain's Career Course or started? No, no, no. You were just finishing Captain's Career Course in yeah. 08. Yep. Down in Columbus. Right. And we got married in October of that year. And then you moved to um, To North Carolina. Yeah. Yeah. To start um, the Q course. Yeah, the Q course. See, Gina knows all the terminology now. It only took me 12 years. It It is its own language. That's true. (laughs) I think it's a funny story. When we were planning our wedding... We knocked it out like in one weekend, one weekend, which is unheard of. Like, we, you know, we got married Columbus Day weekend. Yeah. So the caterer was like, oh, yeah, it's funny. I just had a wedding like cancel so I can take you. And then like the band is like, oh, yeah, the the bride's father of this other wedding, they canceled because the father passed away. So I can I can pencil you in. Everybody was just able to like randomly accommodate us. We the were stars we, aligned. Yeah. So we were able to, to plan our wedding in like a weekend. Wow, that's pretty awesome. Everything just kind of falls into place like that sometimes. And it's amazing when it does. Yeah, yeah it, it was super convenient, yeah. especially since it was, you know, you understand it's like this long distance dating in the beginning. And uh, and even yeah. when we were first married, 
Gina was still living up in New York and I was down at our house in Aberdeen, North Carolina, just starting the Q course. And she didn't come down until a couple months later. Wow. It's really funny. When you first get married and you're in the military, it's everything is just, you have to be flexible. There's nothing that you can do where you have to be, where you can be rigid about anything. For Kristen and I, we got married November 14th is the day after my birthday. And I deployed less than a month later to Afghanistan. So we spent basically the first year of marriage, you know, separated. Yeah. And so she came, she actually went to Italy and got there a couple of months before I got back. And you know, we were really fortunate. Some of the other wives you know, really took care of her and got her acclimated. And then some of my guys, when, when they got back before I did, you know, got my vehicle working and you know, made sure she knew where to go in town. And it was awesome. But there's just so much you have to be flexible with. And I'm sure it's a, you have to acclimate very quickly. Right, Gina? Hey, that's for sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> so when did, when did you get down to uh, North Carolina? Um, so we got married in October and I think I ended up getting down there, what, like January, February? Yeah. I was going to say like February. It was the language portion of your, yeah. of your, um, of the Q course. Of the course. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So like, yeah so it would have been like February. And so did you keep working with the same company and, and the same job during that time? I did. Um, so I I worked for American Express for a number of years in the accounting department, and I was an internal auditor there. And when I had gotten married, you know, I had asked, is there any way that I could work virtually? Or I noticed that there was a call center in Greensboro. So I did not want to leave the accounting team. I loved my boss. I loved the team that I was working with. And so we tried it out virtual for a little while. I was actually commuting. I would go down, visit Ben from like Thursday to Monday early in the morning. And I'd drive all the way back to the airport, fly up for the week, put in longer hours and then fly back. But that just was not sustainable for obvious reasons. It was expensive and exhausting and just didn't make sense. And then we tried the virtual thing for a little bit, but that too didn't make sense as an auditor. You know, I really have to be there. I'm meeting with other auditors and, you know, just the the files that I'd have to ship to my house just to go through, which just logistically did not make sense. And then there yeah. was an opportunity to transfer departments and go to the call center, but the call center was located in Greensboro. So when I moved down there, I ended up commuting every day to and from Greensboro, which was 90 miles one way. So it was about 200, 180 mile drive there and back on a daily basis. Every day. day. Wow. That's insane. That's love, man. That is love. uh, All I have to say. Actually, talking about this right now, I'm like looking at him like, Hmm. Yeah. Do you realize? Oh no. Yeah. Do you exactly. <laughs> do you remember all that? Because I do. <laughs> well, like, that's kind of an unsung uh, difficulty of you know military marriages where one spouse is, is a civilian is having a career when you're married to somebody in the military is very difficult. You know, it's hard to sustain it because of you know how often you can move and that highlights it. It's hard to even have one in the first place, but it's hard to sustain it. Yeah, it's definitely a shock to a lot of people that aren't familiar at all, like to the military lifestyle or just customs or the hardships, right? Like, I think it was a total shock to Gina's system of just simple things like, you know, you're talking about being away your first year of marriage. I know, you know, normally after you graduate the Q course, you're supposed to have like 30 days leave. 
and we were planning on going away for that. And that week of graduation, I got told, hey, congratulations, you're going to such, you know, you're going to second battalion, um, seventh group, they're deploying, you know, right away. So you're not going to get that leave. And in fact, you know, report to battalion on Monday next week. Wow. And so having to tell that to Gina, like, hey, oh, by the way, that vacation that we booked to go down to, was it Belize? No, yes. it was it was Belize. Oh, no, it was Costa Rica. Costa Rica. Yeah, we can't, we're not doing that. We can't do that. And like, so, you know, like, she's like, wait, what do you mean? Like, why? Wow. It's funny you say Costa Rica. During R&R on my deployment, we took our honeymoon in Costa Rica during one of the two weeks. And that's just the way it is. Absolutely. Yeah. We were really fortunate when we got married. She came to Italy because she had to go through my whole pre-deployment screening and everything. And fortunately, we had a three or four day weekend and it was in, you know, thank God, Italy. And we went over to Cinque Terre for the, for the weekend. So that was amazing. But we were extremely fortunate that, that was even the case. Wow. So that's incredible. I, I can't believe that that, you know, that happened that quickly. How was it getting into your team? Did you get a team right away? Yeah, I, I was assigned a team right away. And uh, we deployed probably like a month after, I guess it would have been a month or two after the Q course. Oh, it was a month. Month after the Q course. Oh, no, wait. What, when did you graduate? Mm-hmm. May? A- or, April. Oh, April. Okay, so you, you deployed in um, June. It was June. two months. Yeah. Wait, uh, you did that other thing for, what is that thing called? PMT. Yeah, didn't you do that? Yeah, like the pre-mission training. Yeah. It, it's one of those things where like you're not deployed yet and you're home, but you're not really home and you might as well be deployed. Yeah. And um, so did all the PMT stuff, had a team, we deployed. And in fact, it was right before we left that we learned that we were going to get extended. So instead of doing a six-month deployment, I had to tell Gina that we're actually doing a nine-month deployment and um, wow. and ended up going to Afghanistan. And actually, it would have been that first month that you found out that you're pregnant. Too. Yeah, it was. Um, I think you weren't even in Afghanistan yet. And I was like, I found out I took a test. Yeah. And I came out positive. And I was it was probably about three in the morning. And I didn't want any I wanted you to be the first one to know. Yeah. And I was freaking out because, you know, I'm so excited. You're pregnant. I'm pregnant. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Yeah. I'm like, do I call my parents? I'm by myself in North Carolina. I don't know anybody. And so I emailed Ben and thankfully he got the email pretty quickly because you respond, you responded so fast. It was so weird. Yeah. It was like, you just happened to randomly be checking email or some, I don't know. Yeah. And you got it and you were, you weren't. Um, you did a screen. Cause I remember it was a screenshot of the pregnancy test too, right? Yeah. yeah. I took, I took a picture. Yeah. It wasn't a screenshot, but yeah. And, um, yeah. And then you wrote me back. And so I knew you knew, and then I could tell everybody. Yeah. <laughs> So yeah, I got to admit, that's a pretty cool way to find no, out. No, definitely. And um, so I did that deployment. I actually came back uh, about a month early from that deployment because Peyton was born and they, they let me uh, leave about a month early. Gina was having like a rough pregnancy. So just to make sure like there would be no issues, I, I they let me go home early. Yeah. And um, that's awesome. So Peyton was born. My team got back like the next month. That would have been April. And then in typical military family fashion, seventh group was relocating and moving down to Florida. I had to do that, then go to dive school for six weeks and then do PMT because we all knew we were going right back to Afghanistan. So we had our house in North Carolina 
And the plan was, was I was going to basically live with a team leader buddy of mine and Gina would stay at the house in North Carolina because we didn't really know what I was doing after my time in group. And, you know, it didn't make sense to just sell the house right away. And, uh, it worked out. I, I didn't end up doing all the dives. I didn't do dive school. And so Gina and Peyton were able to come down and we rented a place uh, down in Destin for about a month. And we lived, we lived like in a, uh, a hotel room basically with a little tiny kitchenette that's probably like the same size of a kitchen in like a one studio bedroom apartment in New York City. It was like something super small like that. So we were together as a family for about a month. And then I did PMT and Gina went back to North Carolina. And I remember she was up in New York too, seeing family over that fall, I think Halloween Specifically, I remember seeing pictures of Peyton over Halloween uh, that summer up in New York when I was down in uh, New Mexico for PMT. And then we went on uh, block leave for the holidays. And starting January of 2012, I left for my second deployment to Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. uh, Gina was down in Florida with me for like that week, just getting ready to go. Peyton was, I think, still up in North Carolina. Yeah. And, uh, and I left. Again, what was it like going through that from your perspective, Gina? You know, you you know, he's not away as, as he's not deployed, but he's away. Um, I mean, it was it was difficult. That's I, I mean, to say if, to say it wasn't would be a lie, and just to say it was difficult, I guess, kind of feels like an understatement. It was. Yeah. I mean, it was really, really tough. Um, you right. know, being a new parent and not having you know, my partner with me on that journey and having to do everything myself. I was still working full time. So, you know, managing that, trying to figure all that out and then having to do everything by myself. I'm also in a new state with no support system at all. I'm, I come from a very large Italian family and we, I mean, that's, we are each other's yeah. rocks. So, you know, to have, to not have that support system and to not have really anybody and to feel completely isolated just sucks. But, um, you know, to lose him in the process where it, it's, it was, it was tough. It was definitely, yeah. It was, it was a yeah. struggle. No, I can only imagine. I mean, you're young, you have a, a new baby, and you know you're trying to figure it out. Especially, I can't imagine. Also, because if you're moving to a new base, that means this a whole new set of systems. And it is is it on the Air Force base there? I can't remember. Uh, so we, I mean, we had our own uh, compound to cross from to right. yield. And yeah. um, like, if you remember six RTB, it was kind of, it was like on that side yeah. of the woods and you could, right. you could drive through the woods. It was like a 20 minute drive through those like fire breaks. You could actually get yeah. to like, the Gator lounge. I think we went there one time for lunch and oh, wow. um, yeah, but you know, Gina between bouncing between Florida and North Carolina. I mean, I remember, remember we drove back and forth a couple of times. Yeah. Like, I oh, drove yeah. it by myself with Peyton. <clears throat> it's like an 11, 12 hour wow. drive. Yeah. I drove it. By it is. Yeah. Um, so yeah, needless to say, it was uh, it was difficult times. Sure thing. Yeah, I can completely imagine. So deployment starts. Uh, did you stay in North Carolina, Gina? Um, I did for 
the first few months. And then I went down to Florida. My parents are snowbirds. They, you know, go live in New York for half the year and then they go down to Florida for the winter. And Very cool. um, we were down there for, I believe it was Mother's Day, actually. Um, Mother's Day weekend. I went down to visit my my parents and we were there for a little bit. Um, and that's when I found out Ben got injured. Wow. Well, let's let's keep going. So you, you find out wh- what happens from there. So that was weird. Um, so I'm not really familiar with, you know, the military. I'm coming into this as, you know, as ignorant as you can get. I had right. no experience. No family or anything? No family. I mean, my grandfather was both served in the Navy, yeah, but like I mean, yeah, like everyone else, right? I mean, they were right. far, World War II. long, yeah, yeah retired <clears throat> and just not really a part of my life at all. So I, no expectations, no understanding of it. Deployments were hard. And then you think, okay, they're home and you're going to spend time together, but then they have all these trainings and they're doing all these other things. And so that's, you know, that takes time away and you're like, God, will I ever see you? And you think that's the hardest part until you get that phone call that your husband has been injured. And that was, um, I mean, it was just heart wrenching. So I, um, so I was down in Florida, like I had mentioned, and um, mm-hmm. I was going to take a day off from work. We were going to take our my son to the zoo, and uh, I left my phone. And I don't normally do this, but I left my phone in the car. And I remember saying to my mom, "Hey, I got to find my phone because." It's been a couple of days. Usually Ben tries to call like every couple of days. So I want to make sure that I have it before we leave. And I'm looking all over for it and I get it. And I see I have 10 missed calls. So I was like, oh, dang, I missed it. And and I listened to the voicemail and um, it's a woman from the FRG. And I was like, ugh. FRG. And I, <laughs> <laughs> if, there's no better expression of FRG than I know, right? That you just gave, <laughs> well, I thought that, that, you know, they've, they've called me in the past and I wasn't, I didn't get involved. Um, you know, I, I kept my distance. I really didn't understand. I really didn't have time for it. So, um, when they called again, I just thought, okay, Something's happened to somebody else because I didn't know much, but I knew that if God forbid something happened to Ben, it wouldn't be the FRG calling me, right? Well, I was wrong. So, you know, I called this girl back and she was like, Mrs. Harrow, your husband's been injured. I'm going to put the major on the phone and he can tell you more. And I'll never forget that because I'm like, huh, that's weird. So, you know, I... I look up at my parents and they're both looking at me and I'm, I'm like, you know, shaking my head, like, I don't know. And then, um, the major gets on the phone and he's like, Mrs. Harrow, um, I'm sorry to tell you, but your husband's been, um, injured. Um, I'm going to put the doctor on the phone to explain all the injuries and go through everything with you. So at this point, I know he's injured. I don't know to what extent and everybody's playing this game of telephone. So I'm getting really pissed and frustrated. And, yeah, you know, to add to all the mess that's happening, 
my parents have really shitty service in their in their house. So I'm I'm running outside. Oh, wow. So now I have my dad following me because he sees the panic on my face. And I'm like, okay. The doctor gets on the phone. And before he can even speak, I was like, listen, I don't know what's going on. But if you pass me on to one more person, I'm going to freak out. Is my husband alive? What happened? Is he okay? And then they proceed to tell me that I'm sorry to tell you your husband um, stepped on an IED. He lost both his legs. And right now they, he is currently in the hospital and they are doing everything they can to save his life. So that's all I know. I don't know any other injuries. I don't, I don't know the extent of anything. They just told me he lost his legs. Oh, and they did say above his knee. So it's really, it's horrible. But um, so my dad's staring at me and, my, and we're like making eye contact and he's like mouthing what is going on. And I just turn to him and I like make this sign across my legs showing like the legs are gone and I'm shaking my head. No, like they're gone. And my dad just right. loses it. And if you know my dad, my dad, I think I've seen my dad cry like twice in my life and my dad just lost it. So now I'm, I'm there. Like, I don't, I still, I don't think I'm processing it to be honest. Cause I'm, I'm looking at my yeah. dad and I'm like, why is this guy crying? I'm talking to this doctor who I swear if he was in front of me, I would have punched him in the face because I'm like, you guys are like giving me just enough information to like, I guess, check a box, but I'm not getting enough information to understand what's like what's happening. Um, wow. So that was really, really, really difficult. And I was like, oh, I hate the army, but this makes me hate you guys even more. And then yeah. um, it wasn't until I got a text from one of our friends. I got Alex Hooper. Alex Hooper texted me. Joey knows Alex. Yeah. Um, he said, yeah, very well. He said, are you okay? So I was like, what the hell? Like, what is, yeah, I'm okay. Like I'm still not processing. And it wasn't until, um, Danny Fields, I don't, I don't know if you know Danny, but Danny was, um, another, um, captain on another team that I knew he was deployed with Ben. I, I thought he was deployed with Ben. Um, turns out he came back early, but that's a whole other discussion, <laughs> but he, I thought he was there. So when he called me and he, and I heard his voice and I heard him tell me that Ben was injured. I think that's when it, it like hit me like a brick wall. And I just kind of like was in shock. I think I just, I gave the phone to my dad. I gave the baby to my mom and I just kind of like, I need to go for a run. I think that's exactly what I did. I went for a run. I was like, uh, I, I don't know what's happening. I don't know if he's going to live. I just need to like clear my thoughts. Yeah. And that's what I did. I went for a run. So that's, so that's all you got in the first phone call is basically like, Hey, your husband is, we're, we're trying to work on him. He's, he lost both his legs above the knee. And like, what is it like? We'll talk to you or. Yeah. Um, I mean, they said that there's a number that I can call. Um, there, they would, you know, it was, it's like a hotline that you can call and get updates on what is happening, where he's at with, you know, his prognosis. Um, but they also said that the doctors would be calling me and letting me know as he progressed. So I 
I remember asking if I should get my passport ready because I knew that he was going to be transferred to Germany. Um, and I knew that they were trying to stabilize him yeah. enough to get him ready for that plane ride. But yeah, I didn't know. I, I didn't know anything else. I mean, I didn't even know that he had lost two fingers on his right hand and then he had significant arm damage. I didn't find that out until the doctor who performed the surgery on him called me himself. And that was, I don't even know if that was later on in the day or the next day. After after I got that initial call, like all the other days and times and kind of like this quarantine, it's all just like one big, one blur. big blur. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Well, I mean, I can only imagine, you know, your state of mind at that point. Yeah. I mean, I think I probably would, would be like the same way. Like, I just need to go get something out, you know, go run. And, and I don't know, that that's something that always helps me. But yeah, I can only imagine being where you were at that point. I, I mean, it was, I didn't want, I didn't want to cry. Like, I wasn't, I didn't, I didn't even know. Like, I, I don't think I believed it. I think I kept, because I remember I kept asking them, I kept describing him. Like, I kept saying, are you sure it's Ben? He's like about six foot, dark hair, blue eyes. Like, I kept, I kept repeating that to the, to everybody that I spoke to. And it was, you know, like I said, it wasn't until Danny called me that when he, he was like, Gina, it's really Ben. I was like, fuck, really? Like, really? Yeah. So I, I think I wasn't, yeah. you know, until I got that next phone call that I was like, damn it, this is bad. Like, this is really bad. Yeah. Wow. So Ben. Sir. You know, <laughs> you know take me through I mean, your side. You know, what, what were you doing? Like, what was happening? What, you know, how, how, did, how did this happen? Yeah. So it was 15 May, 2012. And I mean, literally just walked through like an Afghan doorway into a compound and stepped on a pressure plate IED. And I just, before I knew it, I, I just felt myself kind of get lifted up and thrown to the ground and, and blasted. And, uh, you know, when I, I first kind of came to on the ground, my head was ringing and I just, my first, it's funny. My first thought was like, I got hit by something like, like a car. And, but I'm like, there's no cars around me. Like, it must've been a mortar that exploded like next to me or something like that. Right. Like they saw us walking into the village and they just like launched a couple of mortars and like, I just yeah. walked right into one, you know, they had zeroed in on that location. And I remember just my ears ringing and like total chaos and like, I couldn't breathe. And I tried to get up and like, like dust myself off, you know, and, like gather myself and like, all right, what happened? But I, I, I couldn't move. And I just, I felt like stuck. And, uh, I heard, I heard someone yelling and like screaming, like bloody murder, just like really bad. And I thought to myself, like, all right, well, this somebody else is pretty, pretty effed up. So if I just kind of like lay here and be cool and like stay alive and like whatever is going on, like just just stay with it. My team's going to find me. And later on, I, 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 you know, it was actually me that was yelling. Uh, it was almost like this out of body experience, just like hearing myself yell and scream. And, uh, I was kind of, it felt like going like in and out of consciousness. I thought my eyes were shut or whatever, and I'd be in and out. It got weird and kind of funky and, and just like super chaotic, uh, like in my thought process. And the one thing that I kind of like zeroed back in to kind of like refocus myself and be like, all right, like keep your shit together was I had this picture of Gina and Peyton that 
I had up in my uh, my room back at the firebase, like in the shoes. And uh, it just felt like I was kind of like living in that photo. And I just yeah. remember thinking to myself, like Gina and Peyton, Gina and Peyton, like saying to myself over and over again in my head to just stay alive and just to, to like stay with it. And um, about that time, you know, like my, my team got to me and I, I felt like people over me. I couldn't see anything. And uh, I just felt people working on me. I felt someone like uh, hovering over me going like, holy shit. Oh, my God. And uh, like I even caught like there's another like voice I heard like over me, like freaking out. And it was one of like the infantry uplift kids that had this like crazy southern accent. And I just remember hearing like his voice. And uh, and then it just got to a point where, you know, like staying alive, it felt almost like if you ever, if you ever go in the water, like in the pool and trying to see how long you can hold your breath. And there just comes that point where you're like, all right, I got to go to the surface and breathe. It was kind of like yeah. the opposite of that, where I just felt like I was trying to hold on with like every little inch that I had. And it just came to a point where I was like, all right, I got to let go. And I remember uh, saying, or I thought I say, I said out loud, sorry, Gina, because um, I, you know, my, my teammates are working on me. So I figured at least they would, they would relay the message that like my last words were sorry to my wife. And which I, I don't think I actually said that out loud. I think it was just mentally because I asked my teammates and they're like, no, you didn't, you didn't say anything. And, uh, and that was it. And it was just uh, like blackness. And I remember really just waking up in Germany like three days later and it felt like my five senses had been just totally reset and everything was a blur. Um, you know, I, was, I remember being like super thirsty and just begging for water because I hadn't drank anything in three days. It just had me on like IV. And uh, yeah, it was it was crazy. It was like coming out of a coming out of a nightmare that I didn't even really know what uh, what had happened or not and trying to piece together what what was fact and, and what was imaginary. And uh, when I was in Germany and, and kind of like still dazed and confused and figuring out what was going on. I, I don't remember, you know, time is, is so relative at that point. I, I don't remember if it was like the first day or how many days I was in Germany. Uh, I do remember talking to Gina on the phone, which felt like, which felt great. Like it was a sense of like something that I knew. Right. And so it was like familiar to me. Right. But at the same time, it was just so weird as if like I got this phone call from someone I knew and I had this real conversation while I, while I was still in this like, horrible dream yeah and uh it, it didn't really set in everything that had happened until probably the day i got to walter reed i was just it felt like i was awake for a lot longer and not, and not sedated as much when everything kind of set in and i saw gina for the first time and i do remember in germany i asked them to shave my beard uh, you know because like every sf guy i had my deployment beard yeah. but she she hated when i had a beard so i figured She's going to see me all effed up and in a, in a bed with no legs. At least I could do is like have them shave my face. So I do remember asking them to shave me. And uh, so I was clean shaven and presentable when she did see me. <laughs> yeah. I did appreciate that. <laughs> nice. That state of mind, I, you know, you're a college athlete. You're very in tune with your body. You're, and not only that, you know, through military training, like you know, you're also very in tune to kind of be aware, even when you're tired, to be aware it must've been really, really weird to be in that state of mind where everything's so disoriented and you know, hazy and that, that had to have been hard. Yeah. I mean, it was just, it, it was tough. Um, I do think that a lot of 
you know, being an athlete, being in the military, being, being, just being so active and physical, obviously a lot of that helped, you know, I, I remember, you know, there's two reasons the, the, the doctor told my, told Gina that there's really two reasons that I was alive. And one was my teammates did like a textbook job of placing tourniquets all over me and they're able to get the medevac out there pretty quick. And, uh, the second was really, I just had a strong heart and will to live. And they, they told Gina that I, you know, you could do everything, uh, medically perfect in a situation like this, but at the end of the day, it really just comes down to the patient and their, their willingness to fight, you know? And I mean, it sounds so surreal just talking about it like this. There's a lot more to like, quote unquote, like the fight, you know, but, uh, but, but yeah, it was, uh, it was tough. And I just, I don't know. I was determined. I was determined not to die. And I, I was just focused on my wife and my son at the time. And it was all I had. It was really all I was focused on. And I just felt like I, I just felt like I, I would do everything in my power laying there, like just not to not to go. And, yeah, you know, it worked out. Yeah, I've, I've talked to actually a couple of our classmates at, at this point, and it's just amazing to hear each of you describe a, a very similar thing where it's just that that fight that will, but also, you know, when you came to, you started thinking about, okay, what do I need to do to kind of get oriented and get the situation back into control? And, you know, it's exactly that mindset that, that you're talking about. And that's, it's incredible to hear that, you know, that being repeated over each of these discussions. But so Gina, in the, in those three days, you know, you, you, you go for a run afterwards and, and then you kind of get other phone calls. You try to get oriented that time from when you found out through uh, getting to Walter Reed, what were those like? Yeah. Um, horrible. Um, yeah. Purgatory. I feel like if you had to describe what purgatory was, (laughs) that seems like it, it's that, that unknown, you know, I just, so many questions. I'm, I am a very analytical person, so I am overthinking everything. So, you know, once I was able to process and digest what happened to him, the next part of my like, grieving process now or, you know, thinking process is just, well, what does this mean? You know, one, is he even going to survive? Am I going to see him again? Two, is it going to be the Ben that I've known most of our life? Is he going to be a different person? Is there brain injuries that are associated with this? I mean, I know he was put in a medically induced coma, but I mean, I don't know. You just stepped on a bomb that blew off your legs. I'm going to assume there's some head trauma there. And what does that look like? You know, how is he going to emotionally handle this? I mean, we've, it's weird if there was a movie written, you know, made on our life, like there was a, you know, there was a point in time where we sat down and I asked him like, what if you lost your legs? And he was like, I would be fine. He was like, it's, you know, I, I would be sad. And obviously it would suck, but I would be fine. And so that conversation was repeating in my head over and over again, like, is he going to be fine? I mean, it's a lot easier to say it than to actually have to go through it. Am I going to be fine? I mean, I don't know. I, it was just so many, so many unknowns. And that was what was gut wrenching. You know, I couldn't talk to him we, we did talk a couple of days later. They tried to wake him three times out of his medically induced coma. And two out of the three times, he was so agitated and combative that they just decided to hold off. And they were going to wait to bring him out of it 
until he got here to Walter Reed, but I'm actually not sure why they did that to you. I feel like that was torture to um, wake you up and then put you on a flight, an eight hour flight. Back I remember the, the flight was miserable. Um, I'm not really sure why they decided to do it, but I'm assuming it was for the best interests, you know, to make sure he was stable enough to make, you know, be able to take that flight. Um, yeah. And they just wanted to make sure, you know, everything. I feel like they wanted me breathing on my own or something like that. Or, well, you were breathing. Yeah. You were, yeah, you were, you were breathing on your own. I'm not sure. I'm not really sure. But in any case, he did wake up and he, and we, we chatted for a little bit and he was super groggy and um, out of it and told me that he lost his legs. And I told him I knew. Um, and then he said he was going to run a marathon. And I was like, okay, great. I'm going to run it with you. <laughs> And, and then that was kind of the, the extent of that conversation. I told him I loved him and that I'll see him when he comes over here. And I met him at Walter Reed a few days later. I think I spoke to him on a Wednesday or Thursday, and I think he arrived on a Sunday. I don't know. The, the days are a little Could blurred, but yeah. something like that. Yeah. Um, and I, I was really lucky. I had um, a couple of really good friends, Matt Element's wife, Annie, and um, mm-hmm. Chris Couch's wife, Michelle, had met me there. And then um, my cousin, who's like my sister, um, Danielle, she had met me at Walter Reed Hospital. And honestly, they took care of every, all of the logistics for me. Annie um, Annie was incredible. Um, she had coordinated, you know, lodging and Michelle got like food and other, I mean, it, they just, they just were so, so incredibly helpful and I'm so grateful for the support that I had during that time because, I mean, I'm sure I could have done it on my own, but it's it's so much easier and it's one less thing you have to worry about when, you know, you can't think of anything, but like what what is yet to come, you know? Yeah, and that's, yeah, that's certainly not where your mind's at and you're, you know, you're it's kind of an afterthought, you know, all the logistics logistics of everything, I'm sure when you're, when you're focused on that. Yeah, definitely. All right, let's break real quick. Don't think for a second that just because Emblem is slinging out sweet-ass face masks to save the world, that they aren't also taking orders for your unit gear. Roll over to EmblemAthletic.com to get started on a special design for your group of barrel-chested American freedom fighters while they're bebopping around the unit area and all around the base. So get started. Now let's get back to the interview. So... You finally get to see each other. What's that moment like? For me, I feel like it was it was awesome, to be honest. I felt like every fear that I had kind of left my head because we made eye contact. So he gets off the ambulance and they're pulling him out on um, like a stretcher. Like a stretcher. Yeah. Yep. And he's being wheeled in and he makes eye contact with me and I see him like nod his head, like letting them know. He was probably telling them like, oh, I see my wife. But then as he's rolling past us, he's saying hi to all of us. And I'm like, he's like, hey, babe. And I'm like, uh, hey, Benny. And <laughs> I mean, I, I was like, okay, that was not what I was expecting at all. I was expecting like, Ugh, or no. like, you know, <laughs> I don't know, like zombie, like, yeah on death's door, you know, scary, I don't know, brain injury, he wouldn't recognize me. I didn't know, you know, it was that unknown. But the fact that he was like, hey, babe, and then he's saying hi to Annie and Michelle and Danielle. And I mean, he knows everybody's names. And, 
you know, he's just wheeling right through. I'm like, I remember, holy cow. I remember that. I remember getting pulled out of the stretcher. So I remember that flight from Germany was miserable. Like I was super nauseous. I had nothing in my belly. I was still like in and out of it because they had me in all these pain meds. I remember begging like the nurse for something to drink. And I think, I think somebody gave me some Gatorade, which I then threw up like right before landing all over myself. And uh, I remember getting wheeled off, like taken off the ambulance, which once again, I was like in and out of like this weird, hazy drug state. And uh, I remember feeling like the sun and it was like super warm, you know, end of May in Maryland. And it was, I saw everyone lined up in the parking lot, like everyone like uh, waiting outside. And uh, there's Gina and Maddie Element and Annie Element. And I remember they wheeled us by and they put me in the elevator and then everyone kind of came in the elevator behind us. I told Gina, I said, well, I guess my dreams of becoming a, a calf model have been shot. Yeah, and, I was uh, mortified. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm happy that I, said I was that. mortified. I'm like, oh my God. All right. Well, he's good. So <laughs> we're going to get through this. I just got to shut up. <laughs> oh man. <laughs> but that, at that point, you know, you've, you've been in Germany and I can imagine you've, you've been in the hospital the entire time. Like you're probably glad to see people that you recognize and glad to see the outside, you know, at, at some level. Oh yeah. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I, it was, it wasn't the homecoming that I, I wanted, but it was, uh, you know, definitely I, w- I was glad to be home and see everybody. Yeah. And, um, I, I knew, I don't know. It felt like the hardest part of the journey, even though I guess maybe the hardest part of the journey was just about to start, but it wasn't like this weird, it didn't feel like this kind of in and out nightmarish type feeling of like, fuck, next time I open up my eyes, I don't even know where, you know, I got a piece where I'm, where I'm at and like what's going around me because every time I shut my eyes, I don't know. I don't know if it's been 20 minutes. I don't know if it's been two hours, you know, but at least I know I'll have like friends and family and loved ones that will be able to kind of like watch over me while I can shut my eyes and like figure out what next is. Well, so, you know, for both of you from that point, I imagine at some point you, you kind of go, okay, well now we've got to figure out where we go from here and you've got to start making decisions. And you, what, what was that like kind of after that point you start talking to doctors and talking about what your future is going to be like? Um, I feel from, you know, my side, it was kind of getting back into that unknown again. You know, we didn't know what kind of long-term care Ben would need you know, prosthetic maintenance, um, would there be ongoing surgeries, you know, things like that. So when Ben and I had spoken about where we would settle down, we just thought, you know, it made the most sense to kind of stay local near the hospital where we've built these relationships with these doctors, you know, we're comfortable with the facility. Um, He has a good relationship with the prosthetic department. So anything that he needs, it's not this long drawn out process. He just kind of goes right in, gets what he needs done and then calls it a day and comes back home. Yeah. Um, It was, we're also very lucky that Maryland DC area is that kind of the halfway point between New York, where we're both from, and have family, and then Florida, where you know some of our family have moved down to, and it was it's an easy access point, yeah. I guess, to family, to medicine, to good school systems. Yeah, I think that you know. So 
definitely trying to figure out like where where we're going to call home. We we decided on staying in this area at least for the the short term. You know, right. say five seven years, whatever that may be, from when I got injured, just because we didn't know what life would be like. You know, injured. Yeah, and um, but even you know back a step before that too. You know, in the hospital. I mean, the, the, that summer in the hospital was, I don't know, it was hectic. You know, like Gina said, like it was a lot of unknowns. Like I was, I, I was in a hospital bed. I was up on meds, you know, had, it's like little, little baby steps every day, you know, to being able to sit up, to being able to feed myself, being able to get into like a automatic wheelchair, like a, the Dr. Evil wheelchair compared to like being in a regular wheelchair and then dealing with prosthetics. And so, I mean, really that, that summer of 2012 and fall of 2012 was really just like a lot of little day-to-day battles of trying to, you know, personally getting back in shape. And, you know, actually I'd say too, like as a couple trying to figure out like what this is going to be like going forward. It it was new for both of us. And I'd give Gina all the credit in the world because she had so much on her shoulders, like, taking care of me and like, here I am this like West Point, Green Beret, college athlete, special forces. And I got to wait on her to like get my wheelchair out of the trunk and bring it around to the side. Like, so that way I can jump from the passenger seat into the wheelchair. And then in the beginning, I couldn't even push myself. She had to push me everywhere. And then, you know, she's dealing with that. She's dealing with all the logistics of like, what's to come in the next month. Plus we got to get our son back, uh, who is up with my in-laws up on Long Island for that summer while we were trying to figure out, you know, once I'm outpatient, where am I, where are we going to go live and around the hospital while I'm doing outpatient therapy and just so much going on. Yeah. I mean, it really is. So Gina, at that point, you know, you're trying to juggle all this stuff. I mean, that's, that's really difficult. Yeah. It's, um, I don't know, that seemed to be the pattern since marrying Ben is that <laughs> that difficult unknown, um, that constant state of like frustration and isolation. Seriously, it yeah. was. It was just awful um, those first couple of years. And then to have this happen, now I'm like, damn it. We were so close, like three years of you know, um, SF and then he was going to retire and we were going to have like, you know, the quote unquote the, normal life, the yeah. quote unquote normal life. Yeah. The white picket fence. And, and then this motherfucker goes, <laughs> I mean, it definitely was not ideal. It was yeah. not part of the plan. Yeah. Yeah. Well, at that, uh, completely throws everything for a loop. Absolutely. But, uh, so the new life, you know, it's definitely a new reality. Ben, you start going through therapy, you start, talking about what your options are as far as your know, prosthetics. Yeah, that's a whole journey in and of itself for both of you because um, you're sharing that that load uh, and, and, and Gina, you're running you know you're running the house while that's happening too and, and you've got your career. So a lot of decisions I can imagine were made in, in that in that time. How did y'all go through that together? It's got to be difficult. Yeah. Well you know it's a good story you should tell them the, the seventh group chaplain story. who's the only one that said how are you doing? Oh, will you tell it? Well, I don't remember all of it. Yeah. I was just going to say, I, I feel like everybody, the first couple of weeks of me in the hospital, everyone's coming in and out. 
the nurse case manager, the different nurses, the SOCOM case manager, the doctors, the, doctors, the SOCOM liaison, the seventh group liaison, the, right? The elite, you know, like the officers. Or... Yeah. All these different nonprofits coming by every day to be like, hey, we're here if you need anything. And uh, it's super overwhelming. And one of one of the many people to come by was the seventh group chaplain and super interesting guy who's uh, I think he was a Catholic priest, but he's like one of the only Catholic priests ever to be allowed to be married. And uh, he he's you know, he talked to me for a little bit and then he turned to Gina and he's like he, he actually, you know, he started to talk to Gina like, well, how are you doing in all this? And I remember Gina, you know, Gina can tell the story too, but the big takeaway was like how surprised Gina was at like so many people were coming in and like talking about, you know, how Ben's doing and Ben's healing process and uh, what it's going to look like. And nobody stopped to ask, well, how's the spouse doing? And like, how's, what's the healing process going to be for like the family and like, who's going to, who's going to help them out. And uh, I don't know, looking back, and especially now in the position that we are, or at least Gina with her her role with uh, an executive director of a nonprofit, specifically helping families of uh, injured and ill service members, it's uh, it's like oh, oh shit, why wasn't that like why wasn't anybody asking that before? That's that's actually a really good question. Yeah, because you know when it comes down to it, like, like you said, Gina's the one who has taken on the for all intents and purposes, the family leadership position, because you, you at that point have to focus on you and, and make sure that kind of taking charge of yourself and, and the care that you're going to need. You know, she's also extremely concerned about that, but there's an entire family plan that has to be put together. And I can't imagine kind of going through that. And then, then the first person that pops in to say, you know, Hey, how are you doing? Is, is the chaplain that pops by. And that's, that's crazy. Uh, so can you talk about what you do now, Gina, and, and how that's influenced it? Sure. Yeah. I, um, so I joined um, the Yellow Ribbon Fund about four years ago as the um, caregiver program director. And so it's a nonprofit that is that was specific to the D.C., Maryland area where they focus on two main programs. We have housing and transportation where we offer families of the wounded, ill, and injured service members that are receiving care at Walter Reed. We provide them that free housing and free transportation so that they can get to and from their loved ones and be by their side as they kind of navigate through their their illnesses or injuries and then or or continued care because we have a lot of people that return for you know prosthetic maintenance or continued surgeries or um, undiagnosed that are now diagnosed illnesses so lots of different circumstances and then we have a caregiver program that we focus on the family and caregiver support so we offer you know, these caregivers who give up their lives, they give up friends, family, careers, homes to be by their loved one's side. And they could easily get lost in the system and they lose themselves. They lose that independence and that identity. So we kind of give them not only a respite outlet so that they can kind of recharge their batteries, but we've taken this holistic approach and focused on the wellness where we offer them like fitness and mental health um, options so that we can empower these people, you know, to take care of themselves and understand that prioritizing yourself for even just a small amount of time per day is just as important as 
taking on um, responsibility for your children and your service member and everyone else that you take care of because without you being strong and the keystone of like your entire family, then that whole family is um, in danger of losing their strength. That's incredible. Really, really glad you brought up the concept of identity. Uh, That's kind of been a a common thread through a lot of interviews that I've done and in talking about anything from primarily, I think the angle that we've worked on that concept on is, is from the, the point of the service member coming out of the military and what do you do at that point, right? This has become a huge part of your identity and it's, it's always been there, but all of a sudden that's kind of taken away and all the people that, that kind of helped make up that identity are now not in your life nearly as much, but it's really neat to kind of hear you bring that up from a different perspective is the identity of, uh, of the spouse, of the, of the caretaker and what it takes to have to really be consumed by that role to be the person that you have to be in that moment. And I think that's a really incredible mission is to help maybe in some cases restore, but help maintain that sense of identity and then go, yes, this is who you have to be right now, but that's not all you are. Um, that's, that's pretty awesome. Thank you. Yeah. It's, um, I, it was definitely, um, a hard life lesson for me. I, I realized I I took on way too much, um, all at once, you know, we were getting back our son, as Ben had mentioned, around the fall time. Um, so I had never been away from our son longer than a couple of days. And yeah. here we are like months away from him. I mean, my parents would visit or my brother would bring down, you know, our son so that we could spend some time with him. But to not have him there every day and he's just a baby. I mean, yeah. it was that was heart wrenching, you know, like I don't even I mean, he didn't mind. He's a baby and he doesn't really understand. And, but, um, as a mother, that was the worst part for me. I just, I, I would lose it even thinking about it now, how hard that was, but you know, then going back to work. So, I mean, American express was incredibly generous with me. They, my team was so understanding and, and so caring and considerate and, gave me all the time that I needed. And I just felt like a responsibility to go back to work. And so there I am juggling work. I now have my son back again. I'm juggling Ben's appointments and, you know, taking care of him. And then, you know, my duties as his caregiver and then as a wife and a mom, it was just, it was very, very overwhelming. Something had to give. And you feel that. I mean, that's, it's not just like a mental, you know, breakdown. It's like a physical one. It was, I was exhausted. It was just, it's just too much for one person to bear all that responsibility and weight. And so, you know, I had to prioritize what was most important for us. So obviously being a mom and being a wife, I decided that those were the two things that I needed to focus on. And I had to quit my job at American Express and it was, it was not easy because that was, you know, I was there a long time and had good friends there and it was a career path. I was happy to be going down. I enjoyed what I was doing and loved the people I was working with. And I remember my boss, like I finally just broke down to my boss and I was hysterical crying and she was like, well, it's about time. I was wondering how, how long you were going to be able to like 
hold yourself together like this. It was almost like (laughs) cathartic for both of us to, you know, have that release. I mean, she probably was like, I don't want to have to fire this girl, but her work sucks right now. (laughs) And like, you know, here I am, like, I'm trying to hold on to any sort of ounce of normalcy or what I thought was normal, you know, back then. And what it turns out is like the old normal is not what, you know, it's not what it used to be. Yeah. Right. And so now I have to like reprioritize and figure out what that new normal looks like and how do I give myself, you know, some time to. What about Ben? You're probably going through a similar evolution at that point, trying to figure out what, what does normal look like now? You know, I've, my body's different. The military's, it's no longer a future. You know, where do you hit that point and where, where do you go from there? Yeah. So, I mean, really starting from scratch, kind of like my, my first thing that I realized was I had to get off the pain meds. Like I needed to think clear headed. And the first two weeks of me being at Walter Reed, that May, June timeframe of 2012, that first two weeks I was going into surgery, Monday, Wednesday, Friday for washouts because I had all, you know, so much dirt blown up into me and infections. And once that was done, week three and four, I was a little more awake and kind of with it during the day, but I was on so much like pain medication. I just, I like, I didn't feel like myself and I knew as like a starting point, I had to get off like the pain meds. And so I just one day refused to take my pain pills when the nurses came in, you know, they give me my pill cocktail every morning and evening. And I was like, nah, I was like, I don't, I don't want any of the narcs. And they're like, whoa, what, you know? And I was like, no, I don't don't want any of the pain pills. And so they couldn't make me take them. And the next day the doctors came in and doing the rounds and like, you know, Captain Harrow, uh, the nurses said that you didn't want to take your pain pills. And I was on, I was on a morphine paddle, like, so IV morphine. Uh, I was on ketamine at one point, and then they put me on methadone to weed me off the ketamine. I was on two different types of Oxycontin. I was just on a bunch of wow. different stuff and I told the docs, I was like, yeah, I was like, I just, I don't need it. Like, I, I think I can deal with what's going on. Dilaudid. Like, oh yeah. And I was on Dilaudid. I was like, I, I, I could just deal with what's, what's going on, uh, you know, clear headed. And, uh, they're like, look, don't be the overly macho green beret. Like <laughs> if you need the, if you need the pain pills, take the pain pills. And I was like, look, I get it. I understand pain management. I understand you're trying to lower my heart rate to help the healing process, but I know myself and I just, I can do this with a little bit of pain. And if I got to like suck it up a little bit, I know I can get through it. And so they said, all right, well, we're going to leave you hooked up to the morphine paddle. Obviously, if you don't want to take the pain pills, we're not going to force you. And, uh, you know, we'll reassess in 24, 48 hours. And so the next three, four days while I was going through this withdrawal, um, I was dealing with one, the narcotic withdrawal, but two, also just this crazy nerve pain where I'd have these kind of like bouts of nerve pain where I would, I would feel as if my feet were getting ripped off me. And, uh, you know, it's really just my nervous system freaking out because my brain sending signals to my lower appendages that aren't there anymore. And to help like deal with that, Gina would be in the hospital room, room with me, like, I would, she would tap my stumps or rub my head or just do anything to kind of like give me a, a sensation somewhere else, like just to focus on the tapping or the rubbing instead of like dealing of this like burning pain. 
And then every morning I felt like I would get sick and throw up probably just from the narcotic withdrawal really about after three or four days of, of this just ongoing, I just, it felt like I kind of broke through a wall and, and broke through this plateau and I was just like, fine. I was like, all right, I'm, we, we moved on. I'm, I don't, I don't need those pain pills anymore. And I was able to deal with any little bouts of nerve pain I had every now and then, and it slowly dissipated. And I was just, I was, I was ready to kind of like get going. So I, I was actually able to get out of inpatient about two months earlier. I think they told Gina when I first got injured, I was going to be like four to six months inpatient, uh, living in Walter Reed, you know, in the hospital room. Um, but I got out in two months and I think a lot of that was really just cause I took myself off the narcotics so, so soon. And the next goal was to figure out, all right, well, how do I get myself up and walking? You know, I had seen stuff on YouTube and when I was in my hospital room, I was Googling like uh, amputees and prosthetics and just trying to become a, a subject matter expert and, and learn what, what this life was going to be like. And I was trying to get up and start walking and I was getting, uh, not really having a lot of success because I was so much shorter on my, my right side that I, I stepped on the, the pressure plate with. And so much more got blown off than, than my left side that I couldn't wear full size prosthetics like I wear now. And we were down in Florida for Thanksgiving and I was wearing, I, I brought down in a manual wheelchair, but I had these little practice legs and on my right prosthetic, I had to wear this like belt that snapped around it to keep my right leg on because it would fall off. And I just didn't have a good prosthetic fit because I had such yeah. a short limb. And I remember trying to walk around and I was, we're now talking November, 2012. So I'm like starting to get back in shape again. I'm, I'm trying to figure out like, you know, therapy and just want to get going. And it was so frustrating because every time I try to walk and, and start the process, just my right leg would fall off. And I remember talking to Gina about it in her parents' house down in Florida and telling her like, look, I, it's, it's so frustrating. Like, it's not the magician, it's the wand, like it's the equipment. And I, I'm mentally ready to get going, but I just, I just can't go. And uh, nothing seems like nothing seems to work. And she's like, well, you know, have you talked to the doctors about it? Like, maybe they can do something. And I was like, you know, I feel like they would have told me like, I, I tell everybody about this, and they would have said something. And Gina said, Well, you know, I saw this show on TLC uh, called Little People. And you know, they're, they're, they're little people. And one of them had surgery where they grew bone and they made them taller. Like maybe that's something they can do for you. And I was like, Gina, I'm an amputee, not a fucking midget. <laughs> and uh, with that impetus from Gina, I started to do a lot more research online. And I discovered this process called osseo distraction, where it was mostly used in the world besides in hospitals were women in Russia and China that wanted to be models to try and live better lives. They would pay to get their shin bones broken and they would stretch out their shin bones, the broken bone over the course of a couple of months and end up growing bone and in turn growing a couple of inches of height. Oh, wow. Um, so I, I took that idea back to the doctors at Walter Reed and I said, hey, do you guys know about this process? Um, and they're like, yeah, we know about it, but we usually only use osseo distraction for correcting crazy compound fractures and realigning bone or if a kid, you know, breaks his leg real bad when he's like eight or nine and it breaks through the growth plate and one leg grows at a different rate than the other, then doctors will will, will do a bone lengthening to, to help them and lengthen the, the shorter bone. They didn't do that at Walter Reed, but they put Gene and I in touch with the doctor up in Baltimore. And I remember we went to go see him and he's like, Ben, you know, good news, bad news. I can definitely get you, you know, two to three inches of bone growth 
on uh, your short side there. But bad news is you're going to have an external fixator on for like nine months and you're going to be, you know, you got to turn the screws on the fixator four times a day to stretch out the brake and it's going to be half in you, half out of you. So you're going to have infection to deal with. And that's kind of the bad news. And, you know, in my mind, it was like, all right, it's like going through it's like going through all a ranger school and then getting told if you really, really want to get your ranger tab, you got to go, you got to day one yourself. Like, yeah. All right, man, I'll do it. But is there any other way? And he's like, well, I, I know this doctor up in Minnesota that uses an all internal device. And maybe this, you, you could be a good candidate for, for this, but I, I got to send them your x-rays and get in touch with them. Um, but you know, that will definitely cut down on the possibility of infection and, you know, be a, a lot more comfortable than having this bear trap stuck on your leg. And so he got, in, he sent my information to the doctor up in Minnesota. And a couple of weeks later, I got on a phone call with him and he introduced himself and Gene and I ended up flying up to Minnesota. And he said, you know, good news, Ben, is I think I can get you two to three inches of bone. And bad news is, you know, you'll have this internal device uh, that you'll have to use a radio transmitter to lengthen the device in your broken leg four times a day, but at least it, we're, we're going to minimize the risk of infection and you're not going to have an external fixator on you. And, uh, you know, long story short, I went through the bone lengthening process and it took about 11 months from start to finish. I ended up setting two medical world records, one for the shortest stump ever lengthened on an amputee. The other is for the most bone regenerated on a human. So instead of growing two to three inches of bone, I ended up growing about five and a half inches of bone back. And wow. got myself up and walking, and you're like, that's that's great, and like I'm I'm happy about that. But what I'm I'm like more proud of the fact that, that I made myself patient zero, and it's an actual procedure for for other guys at the hospital that had the same situation where they just didn't have a good prosthetic fit. So there was an out, there was a solution for them that they could go through this bone lengthening procedure and gain a couple of inches of length on a on a stump, and uh, you know it makes all the world of difference. For, from prosthetics. And it, I know, I mean, I know it helped some other guys. So that's like the thing I'm most proud about when it comes to that. Yeah. I mean, that is incredible. And that really speaks to the same, I think the same kind of attitude and the same outlook that got you through the rest of it too, of not quitting, finding a way of, of kind of persisting, I guess the, maybe the best word. Yeah. 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 I mean, I just, I refused, I just refused to get told no, you know, I, I know, I, I tell people I got this like seven year old kid with cancer type attitude from a lot of the doctors and therapists. And it pissed me off so much of like, I'd be like, man, this is frustrating. Like what I, we need to figure this out, like help. And they'd just be like, well, at least you're alive, you know, get back in the wheelchair and scoot away. And I'm like, look, man, this is so fucking unacceptable. Like I was a college athlete. I was a green beret. I got it. The wheelchair is going to be part of my life, but like, I'm going to be up and walking around. Like that's, I, I just know it. Like that's, there's all, that's, that's, that's the only ending to this story. And yeah. it would just be like shoulder shrug, who knows, you know? And I was, right. so I just, I, I refuse to be told no. Yeah. It, it, it's continued to, to work out for me. Yeah. You know, fast forward, you know, a few years and you know, I was talking to Clay Henchman and he said this on the episode that we recorded together. He he's in Disney world and he, and he sees you and, and, and you're walking around and, and he's, uh, and he's in his little scooter. And, <laughs> that, was, uh, that was so funny. Gina, <laughs> that was, uh, that was great. Gina was there for that. We're, so we're at, we're at Disney and 
you know, we had we had gone to Disney. I, I never when I was growing up, I never went to Disney. And Gina had gone there before. And when we first had paid in and it was in between my two deployments as an SF guy, we took Peyton as a little baby to Disney and uh, Gina's parents came and it's like a fun family thing. And I was like, I get it. Disney, Disney's fun. I was like, yeah. I, I get it. And uh, we had gone back to Disney once before when I was uh, post-injury and I was in a wheelchair and I just, I fucking hated it. I hated having to wheel myself all around and I just, I didn't like it. And I, I told myself that when we come back here, I'm going to be walking around. And, uh, and I was, you know, I, I that, that time I, I didn't bring my wheelchair. I walked everywhere. And I mean, for anyone that's been to Disney down in Florida, I mean, you're doing like easily like six miles a day, five, six miles a day, just walking around. If that, you know, it's a, it's a trek. And then plus walking yeah. around on, as an above the knee, bilateral above the knee amputee, you know, it's, just for a single above the knee amputee, it's 70% more effort. So as a bilateral and I'm high on one side, I mean, you're talking like 150% more effort to, to move from point A to point B. And I remember uh, walking around at Disney and just just doing my thing. And I hear Ben Harrow in, uh, in Hinchman's like deep Southern accent. And I look over and there he is in that like old lady scooter. he 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 drives over to me and he's like god damn it he's like of course there you are i see you just walking right by and here i am sitting in a scooter feeling sorry for myself (laughs) (laughs) oh man which is exactly the way he describes it too (laughs) yeah Um, it it was great to see him uh there's a great picture of the two of us i think it's on my instagram of uh of us at disney together that's funny i remember that yeah Yeah. so so gina um you left your job uh, with american express you know at what point did you you get involved with yellow ribbon fun i guess decide to kind of get into to that line of work uh it was actually a a couple years after i worked at american express um i had taken a job locally here for a couple years um, I probably stopped working, I think it was the f- like late summer, early fall, like kind of around when we had, or maybe it was late fall. I think it was late fall. And then I started working probably six months to a year out, uh, after that um, at another place. And I worked there for a couple of years. And then um, Ben had become friends with one of the board members at the Yellow Ribbon Fund, and he reached out to Ben asking if I would want a job there. Um, they were looking for somebody to run their caregiver program. And Ben was like, well, I don't know. Let, let me see. And we had spoken about it. And I was like, I don't know. You know, I'm kind of liking where I am right now. I'm building roots there. I'm not sure. And we met. I went in for an interview. I was like, well, it's closer. It's here in Bethesda. It's really only like a three, three mile commute for me. So that was, that was <laughs> enticing. Yeah. And then I met with one of their founders, um, John Adams. And I met with one of their, the board members at the time, Annie McChrystal, who is General Stanley McChrystal's wife. And I just yeah. loved them both. I, I still do to this day. I think John and Annie are the reasons why I wanted to join the team. Because quite frankly, um, I feel like we were in a good place. I, 
you know, our family had been through so much. I didn't know if I really wanted to get back involved. I just didn't know. I mean, of course, I always want to help in any way that I can families that are going through what we went through, but I didn't know that I wanted a career in that, you know, but speaking with Annie and John and just being inspired by what they were doing with the organization and giving me the freedom to kind of change what I, where I saw flaws in the program and enhance it in ways that, you know, um, could benefit others. I was like really excited about that opportunity. And so I joined about four years ago and it's been very rewarding. Um, it's really nice to be able to give back and help provide so much support and assistance to those who truly need it. Yeah. You know, like I said in the beginning that there was so many nonprofits that came to my hospital room and introduced themselves and said who they were. And there's like, I mean, there was, we probably still have somewhere in this house, all the business cards and little things that people gave us. There never really was an organization that dealt more for the the support system and making sure that the the injured service member support system was taken care of and on the home front, everything was good. And I think that when Gina was given the opportunity, you know, we lived through everything. So we saw the shortcomings of a lot of nonprofits and we never, you know, when I was injured, we never, we never used the yellow ribbon fund or, or they, you know, they didn't help us out. So we just knew of them as like another veteran nonprofit. But when Gina was given that opportunity to be like, all right, I lived it. I know it's effed up. I know who needs help. Like I can do some good here. You know, I think it's pretty cool that she's able to to pay it back. Right. And like kind of help others that don't have to go through the same pitfalls and, and help others that are, you know, just like how she was when I first got injured and figuring out like what's next. And this whole burdens on her shoulders that there's an organization out there that can help steer wives or husbands or family members that are playing the caregiver role in, in the right direction as like a resource. No, yeah. And, and that's, we talked on the phone a little bit before and, and really I've talked with a whole bunch of different people about this. That's what it's about is kind of taking your experiences and being able to translate those into, into your new life. I think that's a, that's a common thread. You go through your experience, both of you, and from what I've seen and, and from talking to you, you've been able to take those experiences and then move forward into a, a new life and, and be able to implement those lessons and try to you know, help others. And Ben, you, you've done a similar thing with a CU. You work with, uh, you still work in lacrosse as well. And, uh, but you've also, you have a, a career that you've created outside the army. Yeah. I mean, I, I try and, you know, quote unquote, give back and, and pay it forward um, with, speak engagements or helping however I can, uh, within the lacrosse community and even just athletics overall, you know, a lot of people have asked me that I know that are high school coaches or like little club lacrosse programs around in the area. You know, if they ask me to come and talk to the team, I I always tell them, you know, not a problem. I, I love to do that just because I personally feel that a lot of my character and who I am that was developed at an early age and just fine tuned over the years because of athletics. And I think that it's, it's such an important thing to, to be an athlete. You know, I, I think it, it saved my life. It helps me out in life. Like now being how determined I am. And, uh, you know, I think with G with Gene and I, like being able to, to pay it back and 
and help others just from the lessons that we learned, that's that's pretty big for us. Definitely. Gina, do you feel the same way? Like as far as has that helped as well, I guess, in in kind of re- reflection, thinking about what you what you went through, has that helped you out? Yeah, um, definitely. I think that, you know, it's therapeutic because you know your struggles and you're hoping that by making this change or giving this extra support to somebody, it helps them avoid those same struggles you went through. And, you know, I, I look at it like running this organization is like an extension of my family. You know, like I, I have a, an amazing support system. I mean, honestly, the only reason why I truly believe that Ben and I are in the healthy position that we are in is because I had the love and support we both did from my parents, my brother, my cousin. I mean, these people are just anything that we needed during that time. I mean, even when it was just to like cry and break down, they were there. They, they were the shoulder to cry on. They were the, the, the muscles to like lift us up, you know, even, even financially. I mean, not that, you know, we were very blessed. We're in a, we're in a better situation than a lot of other people, but it's um, it is a financial, a mental, a physical strain on you know on your whole family to go through this. So they were there every step of the way, and that's kind of how I run the organization. You know, I want these people to truly feel that the Yellow Ribbon Fund is there to support them, like their family. We yeah. are their family. We want to keep families together, and we will do whatever we can to provide that support. Right. And it's, and it's still very needed too, because you still have, you know, a lot of service members are still getting wounded around the world and, uh, and need that support. Um, you know, I feel like sometimes sure. people forget we still have so many people that are deployed and, and serving and, in conflict areas and, and even, uh, you know, in, in war zones. So. Yeah. And you have training accidents and yep. I mean, there's just, I mean, just even regular accidents, people could be, you know, serving active duty and they get, God forbid, into a car accident. And then you have yeah. all these like, you know, life changes and those, those families need support. I mean, Absolutely. you know, just, just being a mil- military family in general, um, my takeaway from that is the struggle is real. These, these people are, <laughs> yeah. I mean, to if you make it out of that together and happy truly happy i i mean kudos it is it is not easy high, high five to us right yeah. i know we are we are yeah. literally yeah. high fiving <laughs> it is not it is a challenge and it and it challenges you in every way shape and form i mean it is it is the truth um but then to add a layer of a catastrophic injury, um, you know, a catastrophic illness, um, any one of those things that would send any normal family into a state of chaos, having that military family dynamic. I mean, it's not easy. It is not easy. And I don't know that there's any one right way for everybody, the way that we handled it and the way that we were supported, you know, helped us grow together and grow stronger. But you know, I, I certainly don't, don't find it to be a failure on anyone's part if they grow apart either, you know, sometimes yeah. it's just not, um, it's just not meant to be. And, and you got to respect those people's paths as well. Yeah. So. Well, 
really it's it's where y'all want to go from here. If there's anything that you want to talk about that we didn't cover or I think we said it all. I'm we trying to I'm trying to think of anything yeah. else that we You know what our is for the next like thirty days. Yeah. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, seriously. Uh, yeah. Although I will say quarantine isn't as bad as everybody's making it out to be. Yeah. No. Yeah. It, it it's if you pretty like your family. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, it's pretty awesome. Like we were just talking about this the other day. I am very thankful for the time, like as a family that we're getting to spend. And it's made me realize in the, the time before, I guess you could say, how much time I, I spent away from my kids during the week. And I'm like, that sucked. Like, that was horrible. Yeah. yeah. And there's certainly times where I'm just like, can y'all just like go do something for a little bit? Absolutely does happen. But right now, I get to see my kids all day and, th- th- and teaching them the things that I think are, th- are important too, not just the things that are in their curriculum. It's it's pretty great. Yeah, no, I agree. Like one of one of my favorite things about quarantine is uh, is dinner time, and I feel like it's like the culminating like event in our house, and it's like yeah, just because we're all here, like the TV's not on, no one's messing around with their phone. It's just nice. Like I, you know, before I felt like we came to the dinner table, everybody was doing like 50 different things. Dinner lasted 10 minutes. And then it was like on to the, the next event, whether that yeah. was bath time and getting ready for bed or checking homework or whatever. But now I feel like dinner goes for like 30, 40 minutes of us just like sitting at the table and eating and talking and like enjoying food in each other's company. And it, it's been a nice like little social reset. I feel no, like I completely agree. I, I love it. That part has absolutely been great. The only time that's been stressful is just trying to juggle the the work and kids at the same time, which yeah, I've just found as long as we're mentally flexible and saying, hey, well, this this isn't going to be perfect. So it's kind of take it where it's at. Yeah, speak- no, totally. I mean, the same for us is, I mean, like I, I work from home anyway, and uh, I, I was traveling a decent amount to check on check on ongoing work stuff and meet new clients and do that part of the business. And then I'd be home kind of taking care of things on the home front, you know, when I'd be back at the house and kind of preparing and lining up meetings for my next business trip. So, you know, work wise, it's, I'm not traveling as much, but I'm still busy just with trying to get stuff done as as best as possible. And also being like a a third grade math teacher slash pre-K ABC teacher. Yeah, absolutely. Same. We're running through kindergarten curriculum. You know, it's on a Chromebook. It's low stress. It's like, okay, well, I'm just going to teach you the concept and make sure you understand it. So, yeah, I mean, <laughs> let's we can have a whole nother two hour podcast about how they teach math nowadays, which I, yeah. I just don't, I don't get. But he's yeah, he comes up with the right answer. So that's all I care about. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah. Did we both get to the same place? All right, fine. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, thank you all so much for doing this, and it's. It's really been great. Thanks, Gina, for for coming on and first considering it, and then you know, second and doing it. So Chris and I were talking about this a while ago, and me being you know singularly focused, I was like, oh well, you know, what if I talk to these folks? These folks? and she goes, Joey, why why don't you talk to Ben and Gina and and get both their perspective? And I was like, I'm glad you're a thousand times smarter than me because I just <laughs> I would not have put the pieces together. So mm-hmm. I, I really have her to thank for the idea, but I have you to thank for, for coming on and, and, and talking about it. Well, thanks for having us. This was, this is fun. You know, it's, it's good to talk about it and get it out. 
Yeah. And I think, um, it's therapeutic. Yeah, it is therapeutic. And I think if it can help other people, you know, listening to it and giving people hope, that's, um, that's exciting in itself. Right. I mean, that's, that's what it's all about. Giving back. Absolutely so, agree. Yeah. So thank you. I appreciate it. And, uh, I, I really hope it can provide that for, for other folks as well. All right. Well, I will not uh, keep y'all any longer. Thank you so much again. All, All right. right. Thanks, Joe. Thanks, Joe. Bye. Yep, bye. Hey, you. Yeah, you. Hold up before you head out. If you've ever ordered group gear, no doubt you've had a corner of PFC Schmedlap in the chow line for either money or a shirt size. If your sanity is something you're interested in keeping, Emblem Athletic can set up a store where everyone can order and get their shipment individually. If that's somehow not a problem, no biggie. They send you a badass box in bulk. Problem solved, problem staying solved. Head to emblemathletic.com to get started. Thank you so much for taking time to listen to the show. If you liked it, please share it with family and friends. And please consider leaving a rating or even better, a review. It really does help. And while you're at it, hit the subscribe button wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you'd like to connect with the show, you can visit the website at nstiwpodcast.com. Follow on Twitter at nstiwpodcast1 or on Instagram or Facebook at NSTIW Podcast, where you will receive additional notifications as well as additional content. If you're enjoying this podcast and would like to see it continue to dive into bigger and better stories, consider donating. Navigate to the website where you can read how the donation will be used and you can easily donate over PayPal. On a final note, if you or someone you know has a story worth telling, please submit a summary via a contact form on the website for consideration. Thanks again and get out there and do something worth telling about. 